All right, it is good to be here with you guys today. It's been a long time. It's few and far between. Um, something exciting, I don't know if it's been announced yet, is uh, we're actually going to, uh, me and Chad are about done with um, uh, James. I think we've got like two weeks left, which is what we've been going through down in Lapine. And I think all the pastors are actually going to take on, we want to do something on the church for a while. Um, and we thought there's no better place to do that, in our opinion, than the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And so you're actually going to see a more regular rotation during that. Um, so I'm going to take a letter and preach it in both locations. Brent will take one, preach it in both. It's going to go like that. So you're going to be seeing us all come through a little more um, in, the, in the near future. So um, I'm preaching what I'm preaching today um, for three reasons. Uh, number one, because it's just where I'm at right now. And um, I just like being, I just like staying where I'm at. I don't like getting too scatterbrained. I can't multitask real well when it comes to uh, meditating on text, like I got to dive into something and then kind of swim there for a minute. So uh, I'm going to preach this because it's where I'm at right now. The second reason I'm going to preach this to you this morning is because it didn't get recorded last week. Um, And so I was told that it would be good if I preached it again. Um, And then the third reason that I'm going to preach this this morning is because all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, and reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's why we're, that's ultimately why I'm going to preach this this morning. And the reason I had to start um, by saying that is because the the text that I'm preaching on today, I would never, ever choose for you. I, I would never choose it for you. I would never choose it for me. Um, there's a reason why we preach through books of the Bible here at the door. And one of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible is because uh, then we cannot wiggle out of something that's in front of us, right? It causes us to look at um, and chew on and examine and be examined by the full counsel of God, which is what we all need. Um, If we were just cherry picking our sermons, I would never in a million years, (laughs) million years, choose this text. And the reason is because, well, you'll know right now. Let's read James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep, and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the... Amen. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You have laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Um, before, we, before we jump into a text like this, there's probably a few things we need to qualify so that we can properly look at a text like this. All right. Um, number one. I do not believe that this text in any way uh, warrants the promotion of a socialistic doctrine, even though I believe there are other texts that do. 
Don't throw anything at me. I do not believe James is teaching here that we should fleece the rich and divide the spoils. Right? They're rich, we're not. Um, so let's level the playing field. That's, that's, not, that's not what James is doing. Having said that, the second thing we ought to establish is that we need to uh, not believe that James is condemning riches themselves. He is not condemning riches themselves, even though the language here is super, super strong towards the rich, right? Um, what we must do to understand what James is speaking to is ask ourselves when we're reading this, why is James scolding them? What's the reason for it? Because this is harsh. And it is because, or is it because they have more money than others? And the answer, I think, would be no. We don't see that evidenced in what's written. Or is it because of their heart towards what they have? Right? Which leads them to wicked actions and to wicked thinking. If that's the case, we all ought to sit up and pay attention. Because we're all pretty rich in this context. Right? We all got a lot of stuff. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, the problem is not the coin, but the heart towards the coin. Right? Paul goes on to tell Timothy later in that chapter, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to what? Enjoy. They are to do good, Paul goes on to say, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, charge the rich to get rid of their riches. Charge the rich not to be rich. It's not what he's saying. Now, he charges them to check their hearts and their heads at the door every day in regards to their riches. He says, charge them, Timothy, to look at their riches rightly and to use their riches rightly. The problem with riches as Christians is not how much we have, guys. It's what our relationship is to them, to what we have. We good? Number three, we must determine who James is talking to here um, because this is a different approach from James as um, in compared to like the, the rest of his writing in this letter. It looks different. The rest of his writing in this letter has been corrective. So there's a lot of like harsh stuff in James. He's calling the church there out on all kinds of things because every church is messy, right? Again, the best thing about us is Jesus. And so in this letter, James is like, um, he's machine gunning. He's just emptying a clip on these guys of different issues that they have going on in that church, but it's all corrective. He's doing it to draw them all back to right thinking and to right living and to right conduct in Christ. But that doesn't happen here in chapter 5. This is different language. What we see here in chapter 5 is only, solely, damnation and judgment. A proclamation of bad things to come to these people with no correction. He is not calling these people back. And so there's a, there's a part of us that's got to sit back and go, okay, what, like what gives? Because if he's talking to believers here with this kind of language, like we're in trouble. I know I am, right? It's a, it's a little bit scary. So 
what's going on here. And I, and I think the way that, that we that we need to parse this is if you go back, I know you guys weren't there for it, Tony and Peggy were, Mike was. If you go back to the end of chapter 4, he starts his dialogue to the rich in the church. Okay, um, But it sounds completely different because these are people that believe that because of their riches, they have the freedom to go where they want, when they want, do what they want, um, and, and make money and profit. And, and, and James is saying to those people, he's, he's corrective. He says, careful now. Like, Remember, God is sovereign, you're not. I don't care how wealthy you are and what your money can do for you. God's sovereign, you're not. So you always need to go up the chain and get permission from God instead of just run around doing what you want, how you want to, because he's God, you're not. And and so he gives them that. In fact, in in verse 15 of chapter 4, here's a corrective statement. So then do not say, I'm going to go here and do this or there and do this, but say, if the Lord wills, right? He thinks they're believers. He thinks they're people that know that, that God ultimately is their sovereign. He doesn't do that here. None of that exists in chapter 5. And so the conclusion that we must come to, and I know this is a controversial one, but I'm right. So (laughs) the conclusion we must come to is that there's two groups of rich being talked to here. Okay, And we're going to call them the godly rich and the ungodly rich. At the end of chapter 4, he talks to the godly rich. And here in chapter 5, he's talking to the ungodly rich. Are we good? I know we can spend a lot of time unpacking that and and going through that, but we're not going to. You're just going to have to trust me. All right. Cool. Um, One might say, why would he be addressing a letter that's written to the church, those who are are not a part of the church? Uh, That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, The answer is twofold. Uh, Number one, because there are always, always, always tourists in the church. I know that sounds harsh, but there are always tourists in the church. There are always people in the church that are actually not part of the church, but act as if they are. There's this thing called the visible church and this thing called the invisible church. And the thing that you and I are looking at today, not that I doubt any of you, is that we're seeing the visible church. What God actually sees is the invisible church, those who are actually regenerate, those who actually are his, who have actually met Jesus and been claimed by the blood of Christ, who are born again. That's the invisible church that exists across the world. And this is a a very elementary um, uh, Christological theology, right? We see Christ talking about fields with wheat and tares, and this is the reality that's being talked about when he talks about those things, okay? The church, the good news and the bad news about the church is the church is a bug lamp. Cool? I'll leave you with that. All right. Second, James is not really talking. He's not really talking so much to the ungodly rich as he is to the persecuted brothers in this church. Did you catch that here? That's why I went to verse 7 and didn't stop at verse 6. So he's saying all these things firsthand as as, as if he's talking to these guys face to face, right? And then in verse 7, he concludes by saying, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Who's he really talking to? He's really talking to the people that are underneath the ungodly rich. He's actually assuring them 
He's actually comforting them. He's actually encouraging them by all of the judgment that's just been proclaimed to their abusers so that they know that God's got this thing covered for them. He's got it under control. Be patient, therefore, brothers, till the coming of the of the Lord. James isn't really telling these ungodly rich uh, what to do, like we talked about, as much as he's telling them what is going to be done to them. And he's doing it for the sake of the listeners, those being persecuted. All right? Um, what he's saying is very much like what Jesus says many times. It's like what he, what he says when he says, this, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Something better is coming. I know it looks bad right now. Kind of like we, what was talked about a little bit this morning in praise and prayer. Like we all feel that right now. We all know that we're living in the midst of something that's wrong. And it's not because socialism is becoming a thing. It's because we're growing more and more cold towards God. That's our problem. We live in a broken, fallen world. This is why we need Jesus to come and drain the swamp. We need Jesus to drain the swamp. No one else can drain the swamp. They're incapable. I love this nation. I'm a patriot. I'll fly my flag. But America is not my God. The Republican Party is not my God. There is no solution that we can find in any man or any system on this earth that exists, guys. It is Christ coming with something better, something different, something new and something perfect that is not broken, that is not flawed, and that, not will, be, that will not be susceptible to being imperfect or flawed. He's going to bring us something so good. Are you ready for it? This is why the church is here. This is why we need to be more excited right now. The times we live in are some of the best times, even though you and I are looking at it and going, gosh, me and, me and Randy were doing this this morning. Like, dude, I wish I was born 60 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, we're, we're like, this stinks. But the truth is, for the church, for the American church, this is it. We actually have to be the American, we actually have to be the church now. America hasn't had to do that for a long time. We've got to sit back and enjoy our riches and send money overseas so that other people can do the heavy lifting for years. And now it's, it's us. It's you and I that get on a gun, that pick up a gun, that pick up our ammo, that load it, and start handling business for the glory of God because the kingdom of God is coming. Right? All right. Notes. <laughs> Actually, she's right, because I know some of you. Not a real gun. So this is, this is known as a weapon, too. So thank you, honey. I also really quick want to point out the context of the culture that James is writing to in those days, because if you study it, if you look at it, there appears to have been no real existence of what you and I would call a middle class. Okay? In James's day, there were the very rich, the filthy rich, and then there was everybody else. The very poor and the filthy poor. Those who actually broke their backs to make the rich richer. And having said that, now we can go into the text. And it's not going to be that long. I know the opening was long. It's not going to be that long. Because the way that I'm going to do the text is, um, I don't know what, what works for you guys, but something that I found helped 
helps me when I go in and study the Bible and I'm looking at a section of Scripture to preach um, is that I, I like to meditate on what's there over and over again and, and, and boil down what's there, no matter how big the, the passage is, to one sentence. To one se- What's being said in one sentence? What that does is that gets you to the heart of the text and it keeps you from running off into rabbit trails that actually divert you from the actual meaning, the intended meaning of the author. And so I actually want to do that today um, with just these statements that James is making here, because you and I know this language is bad. It's not like we have to sit around and parse it and like look at it any closer. This is bad language he's saying. Like it's pretty, it's pretty gnarly stuff. So what I want to do is I want to sum up in one sentence each statement that James is making here, okay? Just so that we can get to the heart of it. All right. Find my spot. Verse 1. One sentence after water. It is not going to end well for the ungodly rich. It's not going to end well for the ungodly rich. If they only knew, if they only knew what's going to come upon them at death, it would erase their joys now. It would erase their pats on the back to each other now. It would erase their pride in their accomplishments now. It would erase their parties that they're throwing now. Because it's not going to end well for the ungodly rich. They would weep now. They would howl now for the miseries that are going to come upon them. Because they're going to come upon them. They can't escape. In other words, the temporal joys of their wealth cannot compare to the eternal torment of their wages for chasing that wealth. They do not compare and it will be known and it will be experienced and it will be felt to no end. And I can't help but to think to myself, how horrible. How horrible. Guys, if you and I at any time, I don't care who you're looking at. I don't care how bad they are or what kind of person they are. If at any moment you can look at someone and wring your hands in happiness and joy because hell awaits them, we don't understand the gospel very well. We don't understand hell very well. This is horrible. Do these guys deserve every bit of it? Yeah. So do you and I. I'm not rich. I don't consider myself rich. I mean, in this sense. But goodness gracious, I deserve, I deserve every bit of what they're going to get. I do not like hell. I do not like the thought of hell. I do not like the thought of anybody going to hell. I don't care who they are. I don't like the idea of it. I don't like the thought of it. I don't like the existence of it. I don't like the eternal nature of it. I don't like the permanency of it. But God help me, I believe it's true. I believe it's true. I went one night to meet a friend in a public place, and it was super crowded. 
and I wait for my table, and I finally get my table, and I'm sitting at a table of four, and I'm just expecting one more dude, right? Well, I get a text after I sit down, and it's my buddy, and he's like, I can't, I'm a half hour late. I'm not even going to be there for a half hour, and I'm like, okay. So I look next to me, and here's two guys standing here right next to me, and they're looking around. They're like, maybe we should just go somewhere else, you know what I mean? And I was like, you know what? Boom, like, come, like, come, sit, at my, come sit at my table. Like, here's a spot right here. I got a buddy. He's not coming. So they come, and they sit down, and we start our small talk, and we get to know each other. And, and you'll never know who, who this dude was, you know? Um, it, it's just amazing how God does these things. This dude, it turns out, had been a, a serial church planter all over the Northwest, like ran with the big guys, like all the big names of church planting networks. Like, I knew everybody he was talking about. I was like, dang, dude. Like, like that's pretty rad. And I'm like, so, so what, like, how'd you end up here? And he's like, well, we came, our last church that we came to plant was, was here in Bend. And so I asked the name of it, and I had heard of it and all that stuff. And I was like, rad, dude. Like, how you guys doing? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, what do you mean I don't know? And, and, and he says, uh, I, don't, I don't pastor there anymore. I don't church plant anymore. He's like, I don't even go to church anymore. And I'm like, like, what do you mean? You know, like I said, now I'm intrigued. Like now, look, I know we don't know each other, but I have to know. I have to know. Because that doesn't just happen like that. And he says, well, I have this good buddy that started writing a book about 20, you know, 15 years prior, I guess it was. And he kept saying his buddy's name, which was Rob. And he kept talking about the book. And I know this book. I know this book the more he's talking about it. And he's like, my buddy kept writing, like sending me the manuscripts as he's writing this book. And I said, is your buddy's name Rob Bell? And he says, yes. And I says, is the name of that book, Love Wins? And he says, yes. And for those of you who don't know, praise God you don't know. But I'm going to let you know, just so you don't accidentally pick it up at a dime store one day and think, this looks good. Have you ever heard of the emergent church movement? It's basically where you rewrite and question and throw on its head everything that's orthodox in Scripture. And yet you still call yourself the church. That's this. This book, Love Wins, is about how hell isn't real and it's going to be completely empty because it doesn't exist. This book took this dude out of his faith. He's apostate from reading this book while his buddy was reading it, was writing it. His other friend, which has been quiet this whole time, looks at me and he says, do you believe in hell? And I said, uh, I do. I said, I don't like anything about it, but I do. And he said, why? And I said, because if hell's not real, neither is Jesus. Neither is the cross. Neither is the incarnation. Neither is the resurrection. Neither is the ascension. Neither is my need right now. My desperate need, my necessity for a spotless lamb. It's all gone. If you erase hell, you erase Christianity. If hell ain't real, what are we doing right now? What am I doing? Why are we here? And it's not because I like it. I don't. But guys, there's a ton of things in life I don't like that are real. Right? Like gravity. You know? Just, just is. If hell's not real, we have a problem with everything, starting with Jesus and redemption. That's why it kind of matters. So yes, I hate it. And yes, it's absolutely real. And this is why you and I exist on the earth. 
is because hell is real and we have the words of life. We have the words of life. We get to love people and share with people the words of life so that they don't have to check into that place, so that they can check into this other place. This is why we exist. And, and I feel like if we, if we really, really believe that and thought of that, not like it's a high, happy thought. I know you don't want to get out of bed every morning and, and turn your eyes to hell. You know what I mean? I, I know that's not fantastic. But the truth is, like, if we understood that this is a reality, a very present, very sudden one for people every day slipping into eternity, we might live different, and, and we should. We should live different. It may not be so much about where we plan our next vacation or, you know, which video game do I want to play for the next hour. It, we might, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. I'm just saying that there might be a little more urgency in our lives if we lived as if hell is real every day for somebody. I don't take comfort, even though these are nasty people James is talking to, in what's ahead of them, in their demise. Jesus seemed to think that hell was real, and he seemed to think that it was really bad. In Luke chapter 16, we have the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You guys remember that? And, 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 and the rich man kind of lived in this gated community, this castle, and it says that he ate really well. He really enjoyed eating. Like he ate really good foods, right? And then you had the poor dude that was, that was crippled, sick, and couldn't move. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't do nothing other than sit outside the rich man's gate. And so every day when the rich man would come and go with his grocery bags, right, of his next meal, Lazarus would be like, hey, can I, is there a scrap? Is there something you can, you can float? Can you just drop a piece of something? And he'd be like, no, close his gate, go in and make his meal, right? And then Lazarus dies. And then the rich man follows and dies. And they both go to Hades, but in separate areas. This is a weird Subject for another day. So they can see each other and they can hear each other, but there's a chasm they can't cross. And this rich man's just in anguish. He's just burning up. He's in tremendous pain. He's in tremendous agony. And he looks over and he sees Lazarus hanging out, just chilling with Abraham. Right? And he's like, hey, hey, Lazarus, like, is it, is it cool if you just bring just a drop, just a, just a drop? of water to stick on my tongue. Like the table's completely turned. Just a scrap of water. And Abraham's the one that answers. And he's like, dude, I'm sorry, you can't. Like, you lived your best life, and now it stinks, and he lived his worst, and now he's all right, and it's done. It's done. Like, either Jesus is lying or that's real. Like, that's what it's like. <laughs> Like irreversible. Because we all think that, right? I'm certain that when I die and I stand before God, there's, there's going to be like some point of explanation. Like he's going to entertain something. And there will be another chance, you know. There will be another chance to hear the gospel. and it, It's just not what our Bibles give us. It's not what they give us. Like it or not, it's not what they give us. Gnarly stuff. All right, now I've got to find myself again. 
Number one, bottom line, I've spent way too much time on this. It's not going to go well for the ungodly rich, even though it appears to be going very well for them right now. Verses 2 and 3 in one sentence. Everything they love will die and turn against them. Everything that they love will die and turn against them. Everything that you and I love will die and turn against us. Um, right now, that stuff is, is our friend. Right now, that stuff, their riches, are, is their friend. But soon, it will be the nail that seals them into their eternal coffin. In other words, everything that's beautiful and everything that's desirable and valuable to them now will not be then. Worldly riches have a shelf life. They have an expiration date. They have an end point. Everything that we have in this world is perishing, just like we are. Job said, naked I come into this world, naked I will leave. He's right. It's true. That's why it's extremely foolish for us to trust any of it. Just ask Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, right? There's nothing that that man didn't have. And if he didn't have it, he got 200 of them. And what's his conclusion at the end of his life, at the end of reaching the top of the pile of riches? It's all vanity. It's all empty. There's nothing there. And I know that to be true. I'm not like Solomon, but me and my wife, as the years have gone on and we've gotten more and more comfortable in our lives, the more that I've accumulated stuff that I've had my eyes look, you know, on for years. And then it comes and it's like, eh, eh. Just, it's just empty. It's an apparition. At the end of verse 3 we read, you have laid up treasure in the last days, which means that everybody is laying up treasure. You know that? Believers and non-believers. Jesus followers and Jesus deniers, haters. Everybody's laying up treasure. Right? Jesus encourages his followers to lay up treasure, and James is telling us his non-followers are doing the same thing. So we're all laying up treasure in heaven. Which chest we're filling is the difference. For some, their treasures are being stored up before God, where it will be used to sentence them to death, to testify against them. For others, it will be stored up before God to welcome them into his kingdom, to declare them innocent. See, we're all... Treasure hunters, we're all treasure storers. But what it is and who it's for is the difference. We all love Indiana Jones, right? I can't help. If it's on TV and I'm flipping through and Indy's on, like I'm watching it. It doesn't matter if it's the hundredth time. Like it's just one of those deals, right? But what's his thing that he's always saying? This belongs in a museum, Every time he went to get an artifact or went treasure hunting to find something, this belongs in a museum. But then there's always the nemesis, the bad guy, who's also looking for that thing, but he's looking for it for his own power. Like this dude wants to benefit from it personally every single time. And so we remember like uh, uh, the last crusade, the one with the, the chalice. It's like, it's like per, that's all I could think of when I'm reading this this week, right? Is that they're, they're, they're looking for the cup of Christ, 
And they finally get into the chamber room where the cup of Christ is. But the problem is that there's like 20 of them or 25 of them. And the test is that you have to pick the one that was the cup of Christ and then dip it in. The, and if, it, if it's the right one, you drink out of it and you live, dude. The water's a life flow and you're rocking, right? And so the bad guy's the first guy. And he walks up and down these chalices to pick one. He finds the most beautiful one, the shiniest one, Right? The light's just glistening off the, the, the big old jewel sticking out the side of this thing. And he's like, that's it. And you can just see his eyes just going goo-goo over this. And he grabs it and he dips it and he drinks and it kills him. Kills him. And then Indy goes up, you know, and he's looking at this thing and he's got to make a choice. And he finds the ugliest, meekest, just normal looking cup there is. And, and he says, this is it. And he takes it, and of course, he's, he's right, because it's Indy. And there was like another show or two after that. So <laughs> It's the same way with this life and what we treasure. If we're treasuring the wrong things, the things that are not of Christ, they will kill us. They will turn against us in the end. Everything the ungodly rich loves will die and turn against them. Verses 2 and 3. I know this is, we're getting there. Verse 4. One verse. Those the ungodly rich took advantage of have been heard. This one's cool. Those who the ungodly rich have taken advantage of have been heard. Do you ever feel like God doesn't hear? Do you ever feel like God doesn't care about the injustices that are going on? When I think of abortion alone, I think how in the world, how in the world is God not handling business yesterday? Do you ever feel like God doesn't hear or care about the wicked atrocities that are done to us or that are done to others that we see on the news or in the newspaper? Wait, we don't even have those anymore. On the news, on your apps every day, every day, right? Take heart because you're wrong. He does hear. He does care. J. Vernon McGee once told the story of an irreligious farmer who gloried in the fact that he was an agnostic. He wrote a letter to a local newspaper saying, Sir, I've been trying an experiment with a field of mine. I plowed it on Sunday. I planted it on Sunday. I cultivated it on Sunday. I reaped it on Sunday. I hauled it into my barn on Sunday. And now, Mr. Editor, what is the result? I have had more bushels to the acre in that field than any of my neighbors have had all October. The editor wasn't a religious man himself, but he went ahead and published the letter with this note also attached to the bottom of it. God does not always settle his accounts in October. (laughs) He sees, he hears, he knows, he cares. And we're going to spend a slight more bit of time on the subject when we get to verse 6, which we're almost at. Verse 5, one sentence, their earthly appetite has increased their eternal torment. Why do we send cattle out to graze? Why do we constantly push slop into the, into the pig pen so that they can eat, right? We do it to get them big. We do it to get them plump for our dinner table. That's why we do it, to fatten them up. When they're adequately sizable, they're ready for what comes next, which is our teeth followed by our stomachs. So too is it for the ungodly rich. They're actually fattening themselves up for the day of judgment. They're fattening themselves up with their self-indulgent wickedness for the day of the wicked. 
And the truth is this. There is not a good seat in hell. There are only bad seats there. There are, there are no good ones that you can pay more for, right? But hell is going to be appropriately horrific for each person who's there according to how they lived and what they've done. And that's a horrible thought too. And for the ungodly rich, it sounds like it's going to be one of the worst seats in the house. Because according to James in verse 5, the earth, their earthly appetite has increased their eternal torment. Verses 6 and 7. Mostly six. One sentence, though the victims of the ungodly rich are silent now, God will not be. God will not be. Did you know that every single complaint that's made in righteousness and for righteousness that has been filed is heard? All of them. Every single one of them. They're heard. Every single one of them is regarded by the Father. And you know what? He's not okay with people messing with his kids any more than you and I are okay with people messing with ours. Every single complaint made by the righteous against ungodliness has been assigned a date of reckoning. It just doesn't feel like it right now, but it's coming. And so we can say, praise God, hallelujah, Everything's going to be taken care of, and we can also say, praise God, hallelujah, every day that God waits, because that means more people get to come into the kingdom. One of the most chilling realities in the Bible story is the declaration and promise that no one is going to get away with nothing, not a thing. No matter how big or how small the offense, it's all going to see its day in court. It's all going to be exacted. And how comforting is that to you who have endured much wrong? And how scary is that to you who have dispensed it? The only way that anyone's getting out of this mess alive is if Jesus is your attorney. That's it. Because God is going to deal with every complaint. Question... Who do we need to be saved from? Who do we need to be saved from? Yes, we need to be saved from us because we're sinners and we're fallen and we're broken. And But, but in, in light of that, who do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from what God is going to do to godlessness when He comes. And if we're not found in Christ, He's coming for us. He's coming for us. This is why Jesus is necessary. Not just for the drug addict or the prostitute, but also for the ungodly righteous. Those people that we probably would never think about sharing the gospel to. We need to be saved from God, by God, for God. That's what we need to be saved from. When our court date comes and we get called to the stand, we need God to reach for Jesus' record book, not ours. Right? So he needs to be in our, our attorney, but he also needs to be our argument, our defense. Right? 
you and I have what we have in Christ free to walk away from that stand into eternal glory. Full love. Full relationship with the Father. Because of Christ. Not because of anything we've done. If we ever start thinking that we are better than the people around us, and again, guys, I know these times are weird and the divide is getting bigger, but Christians are never to have a posture of us versus them. Right? We need to understand that but for the grace of God, we're all them. We're all them. And hell is real for them, just like it was for us. Until God came and crashed in on our life so gloriously, so lovingly, so powerfully, and said, you're mine. This is what the church needs to be about right now. There is no us versus them. Forget your political parties. Let the pieces fall where they may. It's called history. We already know the end of the story. And it's going to go well for those who are in Christ. So let's be about that. Let's be about that. God, thank you so much for um, being so good to us, so gracious, so patient, God. Thank you that, you, that, that, that we were the ones that, that you stood by for so long, so many days, watching all the injustices we were doing. But you waited patiently until the day of salvation when you allowed us to meet you. Oh, God, give us a heart for the lost and the unlovable and the ugliest of people around us that says that, that says, come God and have your way with them. God, build your church strong and bright right now. Everything's getting darker, which means that the light is going to get lighter, God. Help us to want to be a part of that. To your glory. Amen.